Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the House of Pot. I'm Kaveh. And I'm Lizzie. And if this is your first time listening, we're a medical... Sort of. ...podcast, where we try to discuss medicine and health in a relatable way. And we will answer questions you may not feel comfortable asking your doctor, and definitely won't bring up to your friends. On today's show, we're going to talk to Jessica Zitter. She's a critical and palliative care specialist. She's the author of Extreme Measures and is featured in the documentary film Extremis. And we're going to talk to Dr. Zitter about end-of-life care. And I promise it won't be too depressing. Stay tuned. The opinions on this podcast are broadcasted for educational and informational purposes only and do not represent the opinions of our employers. These opinions are not intended as a diagnosis, treatment, or as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a local physician or other healthcare professional for your specific healthcare and or medical needs or concerns. Welcome back to the House of Pod. I'm Kaveh. I'm Lizzie. And I'm Joe. And I think I need a new catchphrase, but uh, how are we doing, guys? That's not just your catchphrase. It's our yeah. catchphrase, Kaveh. It's my the bad. House of Pod. It's our, it's our brand. You're, you're messing with the brand. You're right. You're right. You're right. Oh, my God. Not a team the worst. player. Not oh. a team player, huh? No. No. Oh, God. I hate myself. <laughs> Anyways, um, let's, let's get straight to an email. What do you guys think? I think it's a good idea. Well, I've sure. been wanting, we got this a few weeks ago, and I've been wanting to read it on the air. So now is a great time. Let's do it. Okay. We have an email from Talon Cantrell, and I hope I'm saying that name right because it's a super cool name. And if he made this name up, it's super cool, and I hope he uses it like as a musician. Or a porn, porn star. Either way, super cool. And it says, hey, House of Pod, I'm currently a second-year undergrad at UC San Diego. That's a great place. Awesome. I could do a whole... Sh- this is not the email, by the way. This is an aside from me. I could do a whole podcast about burritos in San Diego. 
we'll get back to that. There's like 258 breweries or something oh, like that. You could also do brewery show. I could do burritos and breweries. Yes. Boom. B&B. Next podcast. Anyways. And I was wondering what tips you could give to an aspiring doctor. I really want to get into the medical field, but at the moment I don't have much experience. I'm sort of stuck in the rut where I'm applying for places for internships, but no one will accept me because I don't have experience. But I can also get experience. I can't get experience because I can't get accepted into any medical programs. How do I get a start in the medical field? I was also thinking about getting EMT certified, but I'm not sure if that's the right way to go if I don't plan on being an EMT full time. Thanks in advance. Love the show. Good question. Okay. So the synopsis a med student who wants to be a doctor. Pre med. Pre med. Uh, sorry. Uh, right. UC San Diego, an undergraduate trying to figure out what path to take to get into med school and be a doctor. Um, and I was, you know, I thought about this and we did write back to him and, you know, talking about EMS or EMT emergency medicine training. Um, I think that you shouldn't do that kind of thing unless you're really interested or passionate to put things on your resume that you're actually not genuinely interested in doing, especially if it takes a lot of time, I think is a, probably a, not a great idea. Cause I think that those kind of courses take dozens of hours and training. And if you're just doing it for your resume, that's the kind of thing where I would really discourage people from doing. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you on that. I think being an EMT is a really noble calling, and I think it's a, a great job. Um, and, and if that's what someone wants to do, that's fantastic. But I, I wouldn't recommend doing something like that as a means to getting into medical school. I mean, it certainly would give you great experience, and you would get an outlook on the hospital experience from a really different perspective than you would normally. And that's that's awesome. That'd be a great experience for somebody. But I don't necessarily think it's going to really help you uh, any more than, say, research would, which is what I think would probably be in his best interest. If you're in San Diego, in that area, you're around all these places like Scripps, UCSD, all these great research centers, I would say you're better served by getting yourself into some field of research that hopefully interests you. And if you're interested in it, it's going to make the hard work of research. And some of it can be kind of mind-numbing at times. It's going to make it worthwhile. And you have opportunities usually down there to do so. And I think it makes the language easier too. Um, Epidemiology and stats in particular is something that's hard. Um, It was hard for me in med school because I never took any of it in college or high school. And I don't have like statistician brain, whatever that means. It's not that easy for me. I have to work at it. So I do think that getting in research, especially if you're data crunching, um, I think just the language and the fluidity is a lot better if you sort of have exposure before you get into it. So Right. And you might argue that research just is not your interest at all. And, and, and that's understandable. But it, you don't know yet, right? Exactly. Until you try. Exactly. I think that's a great point. And, and it, 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 just like you mentioned, just having that experience of doing that is going to help you when you are a doctor and you're required to read research and you're required to read papers. It's, it makes it a lot better kind of knowing where they're coming from when they're writing those things. It helps you look at the strengths and weaknesses of each thing you read. Yeah. And I think if you're talking about resume building and a one-liner, I think something that's more worth your time and better for the world is maybe volunteering, you know, doing a day here, a weekend here, once a month, at volunteering at a clinic or something like that. And that is probably really meaningful and a good good for your resume, you know? And the one thing I did email him back, assuming Talon is a man, um, is consider becoming a scribe, which is you literally are helping... Um, 
the doctor use and navigate the electronic health record faster and maybe better. So especially in the ER, it's very common. An ER doc will go talk to a patient, order a million tests and have this conversation with a patient and tell the scribe sort of what labs to order. And the scribe can start the process of the note writing and the ordering of everything so that hopefully 70%, 80%, I'm not quite sure I'm not in the ER, will be done by the time the doctor gets to sit down and start to think about the patient. And I've been told by ER docs that a good scribe is invaluable. It's like having a third arm, you know, it just Mm -hmm. helps you that much. And a, a bad scribe or a new scribe, you know, needs education, but then as an undergrad, you're getting thrown in to the world of medicine and the language of medicine. And I do think those people probably have a greater clinical advantage, you know, learning books and stuff about disease. You're not going to be better at, again, epidemiology or stats necessarily. So maybe, you know, you could, a very good clinical experience is a scribe, a very good other experience would be research. So I think those are two great options for people considering medicine. Right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It seems like it's so difficult to enter the, uh, medicine market if that's the right way to put it Uh, just because it's so competitive you have to have like straight a's so but there's these two options you gave are uh, seem like they do from your experience do they really help like does volunteering help if you don't have the grades can you substitute experience for grades or Mm. or at least up to what point i i I think you absolutely i don't think you need straight a's i think if you have a couple b's maybe a c in gym or whatever um (laughs) and then you're applying, I think that if you have experiences to talk about and interest and passion, then that does, I mean, you can't get rid of all C's. You're not probably going to get in, but you know, people in life and for college applications, for med school, for residency, want a more well-rounded, mature person who knows what they want. Who's because, you know, when we went into med school, everyone was in their early twenties, but those kids who were took a longer way around, who are probably around 30, seem to know what they wanted. And honestly, we're really much more passionate about their career because they had gone, they took a wrong turn somewhere and they knew what they didn't want and they yeah. knew that they wanted medicine. Mm-hmm. And they brought in those real world experiences too. I actually was just talking to the son of uh, one of our nurses and uh, he was applying for medical school and he actually just got into medical school. But he was a little self-conscious, I think, about the fact that he was a little older and he was like in his mid-30s or so when he was going into medical school. And I said, you shouldn't be at all. You have to wear that as a badge of, of honor. That is something to be proud of. That's going to help you. That's going to be huge when you're going in there. You're better equipped to deal with some of the stresses that come your way. You're bringing in experience other than just college. Yeah. You know, you're bringing in real experiences and that is invaluable in medical school and, yeah. and dealing with the stresses of it. So you should be proud of that fact. Actually, in my medical school class, there was a couple of older people. And I think, you know, sometimes I think there is a little bit of, um, that younger people have a little bit more energy when it comes to sitting in class for hours and hours on end. There is a little bit you get with youth, the ability to focus like that, but do all nighters and and do all nighters and that sort of thing. But the older people handled some of that stress better. Yeah. And I, I think that was important. Mm. It's a great email. Um, if we have any more advice or you have any more questions, tell and send, send us your, send us more emails. And for everyone else listening, send us email hopquestions at gmail.com or call us at 408-444-6623. Facebook, Instagram, Stitcher, we're available many different ways. So don't hesitate to reach out. Okay, stay tuned. When we come back from the short break, we are going to be interviewing Jessica Zitter the author of the book Stream Measures and the star of the movie Extremis. 
Stay tuned. much for being here um so i'll just get right into it we have with us today jessica zitter attending physician in critical care in pulmonary medicine and palliative care as well at highland hospital thank you so much for being here so happy to be here with you we wanted to talk to you about um so many things um your passion for end-of-life care and discussions palliative care and your film, Extremis, um, can you tell us, you know, we'll start with how did you get, how did you name the film or how did you get started on the film and choose that name? Well, um, you know, I, um, was working on my book actually at the time that I was sort of probably halfway three quarters of the way through, through my, my book, uh, when I decided that, you know, telling story as I say, a book is worth what do they say? A picture is worth a thousand words. Well, I thought, well, maybe a movie is worth a thousand books. So okay. I thought, you know, let, that math let seems me, right. Well, did the math work out? There? Yeah, that math seems okay. 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 So I actually went and in search of a filmmaker to um, tell the story of, you know, medical decision-making in an intensive care unit. And I, um, there was a guy who had made a movie at, at our hospital a couple of years earlier called The Waiting Room, and his name is Pete Nix, and he's a great director. And I went to Pete, and I said, hey, Pete, would you, I got your next, I, I've got a great idea for your next movie. And he's, Pete, being who he is and getting very famous, and he just didn't have time. And so he introduced me to this guy, uh, Dan Krause, who came and met, we met together and had a coffee in Oakland. And he was kind of, a, you know, I was trying to sell him on the idea for this movie, and he's like, well, I don't know, this sounds kind of depressing. It's like actually, it's it's really not. It's it's really I think inspiring. I think a lot of people would would really appreciate learning about how to manage themselves or what's going on in an ICU, sort of behind those doors, you know, in the black box of the ICU. So he came and he rounded with me one day, and he found it really disconcerting and kind of disturbing. And he is like, oh, this is too hard. And he kind of left, and and I didn't expect to hear from him again. And then about a month later, uh, he. Um, said, you know what, he emailed me and he said, I, I actually feel like I need to conquer my demons and I, I would like to come back. And so he did. And I uh, kind of brought his camera and and then sort of went on to make the movie. The the, the title of it, Extremis, I mean, I, I say the word extremis a lot. And so, um, you know, I, I write about being an extremis. Uh, it's, a, you know, the state of, as you know, uh, physiologic um uh, urgency, I guess you'd call it, uh, when a body is, is, is really not doing well and is in, has serious critical illness, uh, particularly as we see so commonly in the intensive care unit. And, um, it's that end stage of that where you either you do something or someone dies, um, or you do something and some, and, and someone dies anyways. Um, yeah. Um, your passion or your interest in telling these snippets of work and how important each conversation is meaningful, uh, you know, and for us it's meaningful. And then sometimes there's just these silly, ridiculous moments. And I think that's 
part of why we do the, the podcast, you know, to be able to sort of talk about that, to entertain as an outlet and as education. Yeah. I, yeah. I tell you, I, I thought the movie was super important, you know, and there's a lot of themes in it that, uh, anyone going through medical training might recognize. And I think unfortunately so many people out there with sick ones, loved ones in the hospitals have been in ICUs and waiting rooms recognizes as well. There's this one, there's a couple of particular things that I want to talk to you about. There is this recurring conversation. It seems like in the movie about families trying to balance God's will or what they feel is God's will versus the course of nature. And that is, I think, at root of a lot of the difficult conversations that we have in ICUs. Uh, How do you navigate these kinds of conversations when it comes between God's will and nature? In particular, when you have technology having such an insane influence on that conversation, right? How do you, where's that, where does that come in in that argument, you know? Well, I'll tell you one thing, and that is I am learning every day about that. I've learned more about how to, how to really interact with people uh, around issues of, of faith and spirituality, which I don't think I knew as well even three years ago. Uh, in fact, I'm going to, I'm flying off at seven in the morning tomorrow to uh, New York City to um, speak about faith and spirituality at the Jewish Theological Seminary uh, in New York City. Um, and it's going to be actually, there's going to be a big sort of interfaith panel with an imam and uh, several ministers and, and clergy of uh, various sorts and a rabbi, obviously. And we, what they asked me to speak about was, you know, what what should faith communities be thinking about when thinking about the end of life, when it comes to the end of life? What should what would you like to tell them? And what I what I realize is that so much of what goes on in a hospital, particularly in urgent moments where decisions have to be made and you're coming to the end of life, et cetera, is is, is that humanity, a person's human, humanity, the patient and their family, has essentially gone out the door. And you are not, a, they are no longer, they, are, they never were really a person. They were a collection of organs, a collection of disease, and they know it, and they feel it. And when you're that frightened uh, to, to come into an environment that is so foreign and so terrifying and filled with already with distrust that a lot of people have for our system, which you can imagine and understand, um, it's not the moment to throw their humanity out the door. And um, I think faith and spirituality and and miracles and believing in God and wanting God in the room is such a normal desire for somebody who, for example, has been raised in the church. Um, And for us in the medical profession, as we do, to really disregard that need, which I have been guilty of just too many times, um, and to really kind of desire to keep religion and medicine or religion and the medical process separate. You know, you're almost like a relay race with the chaplain. Okay, chaplain, I'll, yeah, here, thanks, I'll see you at, you know, even as a palliative care doctor, sometimes I'll say to chaplain, Betty, okay, see you at the next patient while she's going and praying. I should be praying. I should be in there praying with these people because the fact is that's what they really care about is to be treated with humanity and with respect for their beliefs and their hopes and their prayers. And that's, anyway, that was a long-winded answer to you, but um, I, I hope 
<laughs> yeah, no, th that that yeah. does. That's actually really great insight. I mean, um, that's it is something that as doctors, we are it's our fallback to rely strictly on our own science and our own beliefs. And at this time, these people are going to cling to what's important to them, what they know the best. And for all those people, it's religion. And for us to disregard that is it's not going to create a, a cohesive or therapeutic relationship with the patient or their family. Exactly. Can I give you an example of that? Yeah. Please. Um, I um, I can. I have several, but here's one. Uh, um, I have been working. Well, I I, I have this patient. I had this patient um, who had been dying for a year. I mean, this woman had terrible encephalopathy and sort of multi-system organ failure, but it was kind of like indolent, kind of going along, kind of ebbing and flowing. But she'd been really essentially encephalopathic for about a year and really deteriorating. And her family knew. Uh, that she was going to die. But again, it was slow and indolent. And um, I remember being called in. She was in the intensive care unit. She was on dobutamine. Her heart was failing. Her liver was failing. Her kidneys were failing. And um, she was totally encephalopathic. And so obviously couldn't speak for herself. And I was told, you know, look, this this family, you know, they want her, they, they want her full code. And, you know, she's clearly, I mean, look how long she's been sick. There's no way we can turn this around, which was true physiologically. So um, I called the daughter, and she turned out was a healthcare. Uh, she was a medical assistant. She worked in the healthcare world, and was actually pretty savvy about um, medical stuff. Explained, look, this is going on for a long, long time, and the likelihood that we're actually going to be able to turn this around is is really low. And she said, you know what, I really understand that. And I and then we kind of went on a little bit and talked about ventilators and machines. And I said, you know, again, even if she comes to the point where that's the only thing keeping her alive. The likelihood that we could turn that around is, is low. And I described the ventilator facility, which she understood because she worked in that, um, in that world. Yeah. And she said, I, I, I get it. She said, you know, I, 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 I think you're right. I, I, and so she sort of said, I don't think that it would make sense to put her on, on a breathing machine. And then as we were getting ready to wind up, and this was a long conversation, as we're getting ready to wind up the conversation, she says, but, you know, we're a very religious family, and we do believe in miracles. And I felt myself going, oh, no. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Your favorite word, right? right? Miracles? Right. Miracles. Miracles. Because what does that do? It triggers me. Okay? And I'm like, oh, my gosh. All this time on the phone. And, and I said, okay. And I listened to her. And she said, we really believe in the power of God. And I said, I understand. I said, so can I clarify, what is that? What does that mean to you? Are you are you saying that you would want us to put her on machines if she and she sounded like flabbergasted, like she was shocked, like I was an idiot. She said, well, <laughs> "No, no, we just spoke about that. I don't think she should go on machines." <laughs> she said, "What I was telling you is that God will do what God will do. We right. believe That's... in the power of God." And I was like, "Oh my gosh!" Right? Here I am, like. Totally messing this whole thing up right. because I'm triggered by the word miracle. Yeah, right. we let our preconceived notions get in the way. Right. It's an interesting, like, sort of um, conflicting thought process, right? If it's God's yeah. will for him to live, let him let him live, do everything you can. But the opposite is God's will is stop what you're doing and see what happens with nature, you know, and see what happens with, quote, unquote, God. So, so my question is, again, you know, when you talk about God's will and the course of nature— in the conversation of the opposite of this example that you're bringing up, if somebody says, no, I do want machines, you, your job is to do everything that you, in your power, you have to offer 
my loved one, everything in the entire world. Mm -hmm. How do you have the conversation where you say, well, actually I'm the expert and there are certain things I don't, I'm not going to offer. I mean, you yeah. must find that <laughs> yourself all the time. I remember being an intern or a resident and hearing an attending say, well, no, I'm not going to offer hemodialysis in this patient who's going to die very soon. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, I, I want to be there for that conversation, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like some patients it, can't hear that. Well, it's interesting. Obviously, this conversation goes so many different ways. This is, as I said, like there's as many different ways that a conversation can go as there are people and combinations of people. Right. This is all you know, filled with many, many different variables. But I will say that um, um, one of the things I talk about in my book is what I call the big three. And the big three are ventilators, defibrillation or codes, and dialysis is sort of another one. There are things that people know enough about because they watch Grey's Anatomy that it's really hard to simply refuse. That's sort of considered de rigueur in terms of good life-saving practice. Like you're going to use it, right? Right. You should take the bomb out of the guy's heart. Everyone knows that. That is so <laughs> common to see patients with, that is what I've learned from Grey's Anatomy. Exactly. So when you, it's one thing for the neurosurgeon to come in and say, oh, I'm not taking that guy to to surgery or the, 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 you know, the, 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 the regular surgeon coming over there. No, look, I'm not taking that guy for, you know, I'm not opening his bowel. There's no way. So the, the fact is when you're, you, we have a bigger challenge in the intensive care unit saying no to those kinds of things that people just expect. Right. It's not part of the culture to, to say, no, we still need to get assent or consent from people if, for us not to use them. We feel in most situations, if you start, and this is what we learn in communications training in palliative care, and if you start not from the cafeteria plan of what do you want me to do, what do you not want me to do, but you go high, you go big picture, you go goals, you go values, you go hopes, you go, you know, and you start there and you stay there for as long as it takes until, until people really trust that you care about them. And that you want to align with them and try to really honor them and their and their and their loved one. You can't go into the, the, the conversation about what to do. Most of the, the conversations, including the one that you see in Extremis, where things didn't go that well, there wasn't sort of a sense of really everyone feeling like the patient was really the one being attended to. It's usually because there has been some kind of polarization that preceded, that just led up to this tremendous sense of distrust. And I think that was part of what happened in that, in that situation. And you just couldn't, you couldn't get past it because the alignment hadn't been made with the patient first before, you know, the discussion about whether or not to trach or whether or not to do that, you know, these kinds of things. You sort of I don't know if that makes sense, but you, we can't like start from the position of trying to figure pull, you know, I want this, but I don't want that, but I do want this, but I yeah. don't want that. You have to start from a much higher level perspective of, Hey, let's just, first of all, let's process what's going on here and how traumatic it, it is. Yeah. And then let's, let's deal with who you are and how you're doing. And let's deal with who your mom is and, and how she's doing. And, and then before anything steps into, do we want ventilators and not ventilators, this or that? Yeah. Before you go to a la carte medicine, you have exactly. to have some difficult conversations to make sure you guys are on sort of the same page, or at least you understand each other. 
And in regards, and you trust each other. Right, exactly, right. And that's hard to do because you're meeting these people oftentimes for the first time and their loved one is is in extremis, as in the movie, you know? Well, yes, but mo- but one thing I do say a lot is most of what happens in an ICU is not an emergency. Right. So that, I believe, is a, a little bit of a myth um, that we always feel like we just don't have time and we just don't have that. We do have time. We have time to take. It doesn't matter if the person's you know, got an endotracheal tube for two weeks and four days instead of two weeks. It's okay. We, you know, we, we have time and we should take that time because otherwise things just get very messed up. So these difficult conversations that you have to have, that doctors have to have, I really feel like, you know, a doctor has to have a sense of pride in their ability to do that. Well, that's Mm. as much a part of medicine as is knowing like, you know, the, the Krebs cycle when you're studying in medical school or, or knowing the, you know, knowing how to run a code, it's as much a part of medicine as anything. So, and I know that you speak about this sort of stuff a lot and there's way more that you could tell us than in the short span of this interview, but what, one piece of advice would you give to young doctors who are learning that art of that conversation? What do you tell them to do? Practice, practice, practice. Because it is a skill like any other skill, and you cannot do it just because you, you, you think you can or you want to you want to will it. You have there are certain techniques and tools that you have to learn, and then you have to practice. And you have to practice them almost in a drill-like fashion. One of the I'm um, very involved in the Vital Talk. I don't know if you guys have heard of Vital Talk, but um, it's a uh, method for teaching communications approach. Like it, it's an approach where you go to you go to a seminar and you actually drill these. You know, you learn some skills and you actually drill them. And they have hired. Uh, professional actors and it's just drill 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 and you you drill and then someone else drills and there's they there's well some people call it the hot seat and some people call it the chair of opportunity and um people really just uh have an opportunity to practice these very important skills with actors um in hopefully what feels like a safe environment so that then when they're out in the world with patients who are in extremis and who are in need of this kind of communication they are just that much more practiced and prepared to to deal with these very important conversations it's a great idea um you know if these young doctors should probably even start with maybe their own family you know i think about people who are super healthy And one question we also had was, you know, a lot of these conversations come up when it's sort of too late. So doctors should start with their family and something that you're passionate about that I've read and heard you talk about is, um, again, starting young, maybe starting in school. Did you coin the term, uh, death ed instead of sex ed? (laughs) Yeah, that that was it. Instead of, you know, starting about sex, sexual education when you're, 12, 13, 14 about using condoms, start talking about death and don't make it so taboo because that's part of a American culture, at least is this stigma. Like nobody wants to talk about it because it's so sad, but when you're happy and healthy, that's the happy time to talk about it. You know, it's true. And actually, in fact, I bet my daughter would be happy to talk to you for a few minutes too, because she was in part of the inaugural class of death at, at her high school, which is the first place we did it. And, um, um, she's terrific and very eloquent about her experience uh, doing it. But I will tell you that, you know, my, my sense um, is that actually high school students are the least frightened to have this conversation of people I know. They're uh, open to it, um, interested in it, and not, you know, maybe it's partly because it's sort of generally felt to be far away, so it's not as threatening. But they're great, great 
audience to have this conversation with and I, stuff that makes me emotional. Well, let me ask you that, actually, because we've talked about this before on the show. Do you feel like crying with a patient or their family is is an appropriate thing that you can do? Do you think that actually sometimes helps them to see how much you care? Absolutely. I mean, it, you know, I don't I don't cry a lot and I I cry I wouldn't, I don't think I would, I think I would be able to control myself if I felt that a family didn't want me to cry. So I, I, you know, you read the room in a subtle way and, and hopefully read it right. Um, so Joe couldn't be with us uh, today, but he did have a question for you. So he left a voicemail on our phone. That's 408-444-6623, 408-444-6623. So we haven't pre-screened this, so this could be a disaster <laughs> or it could be quite poignant. I don't know. Let's let's hear how it goes. Dr. Zitter, you don't know Joe, but that sums up Joe. It's either a disaster or exquisite. And uh, we love him. Okay, here you go. Hi, Dr. Zitter. This is Joe from the House of Pod. Uh, first off, I just want to tell you I greatly admire your approach with death and dying and offering a more personal touch so that patients can have a better quality of life with minimal suffering in the end. My question is, are you seeing a paradigm shift in medicine now where it is very common for doctors to use palliative uh, care? Would you say that the adoption of these ideas is still in the early stages? And as a follow-up, what are the challenges, if any, are you seeing in getting doctors to utilize this new approach? Thanks a lot. I got to be honest, I did not expect it to go that well. <laughs> Classic <laughs> Joe. Um, maybe, that was a great call. Oh, great I, I don't know if you could hear, maybe just um, sum it up. Uh, so, so basically, Joe's question is that uh, he, he really likes the way you sort of approach the end-of-life care. In, and, in the movie, yeah. Yeah, and, and that you have this sort of personal touch with the patients. And he's kind of wondering if that's common and, and if not, um, how could it, what are the roadblocks to teaching this to people? And what's, what's the roadblocks to people in training? Let me answer this in several, several, several chapters. The main thing is this, you know, this approach to, to zipping together, to knitting together a humanistic approach to a patient. I mean, deeply humanistic with deep listening and deep, deep, deep curiosity about who somebody is. And also knitting that together with a medical plan is new. Uh, I, I'm not saying it, it hasn't been done through the ages on it. Of course it has. But modern medicine and the modern medical world has in some ways, and I, I'm, I'm going to talk about myself uh, in, in that before I had my paradigm shift in the early 2000s, I thought that that was actually what we were supposed to do, was to separate uh, the, the humanistic piece from the medical scientific piece. And I did that. I thought that's what my patients wanted me to do. And um, this new approach, really, which has, I think, been pioneered largely by the palliative care movement since, you know, the 2008, 2010, is new. And it's, again, turning the paradigm on its head of what modern medicine is supposed to do. Um, and I think it is going to take a lot of time to really bring it into daily practice because, you know, for many reasons. Number one, it is just, I'm talking again, speaking personally, it's easier to just do another procedure 
uh, than it is to actually sit down and engage with somebody person to person. Um, and it obviously doesn't, it isn't just easier. It also requires less communication skill. It's also less lucrative to sit and have a conversation that can get emotional and can go on and can not have an answer or solution uh, than it is to just do some other procedure and say, well, let me offer you this and let me offer you that procedure. So I think there's so many sort of infrastructural problems um, and cultural problems that keep us from knitting these two pieces of a human being, their physiology and their, and, and their humanity together in a health, in a medical plan. And again, the palliative care movement and the palliative care interprofessional team structure does, is the first, it's the only place I know that does that consistently. I mean, there's, there's other places in geriatrics and family practice, but, but palliative care really has, I think, perfected it. The problem is that palliative care is still, in my opinion, there may be many people out there who disagree with me, it's sort of the poor stepchild. It's the latest, the newcomer, not only the newcomer subspecialty on the block, right? But it's also the more humanistic and in some ways, I would say, um, feminine, which is not fair because there's many, many wonderful men who do palliative care. But it, it sort of reminds me again of these old gender norms of what is valued and what is not valued? Are teachers and mothers valued? Not the way they should be. We all know that. Um, are cardiologists and surgeons valued? Probably, I could get in trouble, but maybe more than they should be. Um, and I think I, gastroenterologists you know, need a lot more attention and time in the medical community. We're totally undervalued. And, and I'll tell you that as a palliative care doctor, I often feel that way. I feel like we're sort of considered the, the ancillary medical subspecialty sometimes. Yeah, You know, like every, people saying, oh, if I just had more time, I could do that. I just don't have time. So can you help me out with that? Yeah. It seems like when you don't have time to have a family meeting, you'll call palliative care to do it for you. That's how exactly. it feels like it works. But you assume you could have done it. You could have done it just, just fine as well. if, you, if you'd taken the time or had the interest or, had, or you know. So I, in a sense, there's a sort of devaluing of the palliative care offering. You know, in some ways, I have to admit, and I feel embarrassed admitting this, but it's a it's a it's a shift in in terms of from a self perception. You know, I feel like maybe I went from being more valuable to less valuable. It was a really a moment of like reckoning, of like acknowledging the ego piece of it for me. That you know, wow, this has been a hard. This feels sometimes like a demotion, but then to really sit down with my values. And again, I'm not saying palliative care is better than I see. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm just saying for me right now at this point in my life, I really value being there for patients in a way that I didn't, I didn't used to be there. Yeah. Um, and toning up my human, my, my, my humanizing, my patient centered muscles. And I'm, I'm kind of excited to flex those muscles for the next period of my, of my career. Yeah. Um, it's clearly demonstrated in extremis, which again is, um, uh, many nominated many times over um, a short film about your time at Highland, which is, you're still there, right? Yes. Oh, and yes. Then, I'm still very much there. And the book is called Extreme Measures, right? Yep. Extreme okay. Measures, Finding a Better Path to the End of Life. And it sounds like it should be part of all med school curriculums. And we are <laughs> super grateful um, for your time. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Is there anything else uh -oh. that you want to mention? There's one more thing I want to mention to you, which is this. 
I really believe that narrative medicine is the way to change the culture of medicine. And as such, I've actually created um, a sort of theme-based curriculum experience, I'm calling it. It's like PowerPoint that kind of brings you through many of the themes that are found in Extremis and many of the themes that I talk about in my book uh, using sort of audio clips and clips from the video, from from the film, uh, to really draw out a conversation from attendees. And we've actually done this in uh, a whole variety of places at American Medical Women's Association, American Academy of Houses and Medicine. We did it at UCSF's Department of Anesthesia for their residents. And my fantasy would be that this would be something that's autoplay, that's like off the shelf. Anybody could just go to my website, download it, or, you know, run through it from their own department with their residents. It takes about an hour, hour and 15 minutes, and really kind of draw out a conversation about the taboo topics that we are not talking about that are driving the kinds of things that we're doing out there. Um, So uh, I'd love to share that with people. I'm actually getting ready to put it up on my website. Fantastic. Well, everyone, you can find her book, Extreme Measures, anywhere books are sold. You can find Extremis, the movie on Netflix. I watched it there. It's fantastic. And you can learn more about Dr. Jessica Zitter at jessicazitter.com. Thank you so much for coming on. A thrill and pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. All anecdotes and patient-related details have been changed with respect to date, sex, and certain details so that patient identification is not possible. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.